This is the Insulone podcast, where I, Owen Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode... You know, some of the kids that I've talked with and parents of type 1 diabetic children, that was always one of the things that they said, well, you can do almost anything as a type 1 diabetic, except one of them was be a commercial airline pilot. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Insulone Podcast. I am your host, Owen, as you already know, as you should know. But if this is your first time tuning into the podcast, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And I definitely, definitely urge you to go back and listen through the now library of episodes we have for the podcast. So thanks for joining us. I stupidly just put on the microphone. I plugged it in while the earphones were in my ear and I just blew the ears off myself. Rookie mistake. Anyway, <laughs> thought I'd just let you know I am deafened. But Today is a really good episode of another guest for you. Mr. John Roth from Denver in Colorado is where he was speaking to me. He is an airline captain and has been flying planes privately and commercially for nearly two decades, I guess, at this stage. Now, I had always thought that if you're a type 1 diabetic, you could not be a pilot just for obvious safety reasons but john changed all of that there were initially federal aviation regulations in the states which basically disqualified a type 1 diabetic from flying john worked very very hard to change that he will get into that in detail in the podcast this is a class story and very inspiring for anybody who maybe wants to <laughs> maybe wants to be a pilot or just any diabetic who thinks they can't do something because of diabetes you absolutely can if at any point during this podcast it feels as if i don't respond fully to a question there were certain sound issues throughout maybe two or three times where we had to restart but no major issues enjoy the podcast i'll chat to you soon do you want to jump back to when you first got into flying i know you always wanted to be a pilot as a child growing up but when did you start getting into it then professionally? Uh, right. So um, the way or where that goes back to is when I got done with uh, high school, you know, you're kind of faced with that decision of what you want to do in college and uh, or university on your side of the pond. And um, I started to look around uh, at, you know, what could I do that would be of interest to me that I could really um, foresee doing for a long period of time and that I could put my time and effort into. Um, and so I had previously had a lot of interest in flying and had already started uh, flying privately or, or not commercially uh, before I got to college. And so I started to look at uh, university programs um, that would allow me to do that. And there's a number of them uh, throughout the United States. And um, they kind of integrate the flying along with the uh, college degree process. And um, that's when I kind of was able to make the decision that I could actually make a you know, fairly solid career out of this. Uh, and, and that's kind of where the beginnings of the commercial uh, flying career started. And then uh, it just developed through the next uh, few years from there because it is a bit of a, a process to actually get all the way down the road or uh, into the air as a uh, commercial pilot. So how many years then did you have to study or go through the theory or the practice before you were able to fly commercially? So uh, the way that the uh, pilot certificates work here in the United States is that uh, there's various levels, uh, starting with the private pilot certificate, which I had before I went to college. It just allows you to fly small aircraft around for your own personal use. Um, and then you kind of move up the chain, so to speak, where you add an instrument rating and then some, uh, you, some people become flight instructors and then you have a commercial pilot certificate. 
And then you have additional ratings onto there or certifications on there for like multi-engine aircraft and things like um, uh, seaplanes and things like that. Um, and so long story short, throughout that process, as I worked my way through college, I attained all the necessary certificates or endorsements to become a commercial airline pilot. Um, but then, you know, it's a matter of gaining enough experience in the airplane so that you're then marketable uh, to the various uh, airlines or commercial companies. And that can take a little while, depending on how much you're flying and if you're able to attain a job, which can, especially at that time, this was back in, uh, you know, 2000, 2000, you know, early 2000s for me. Um, you know, it, it took a while. So it, the, the entire track, I guess, of getting the certifications and then getting the appropriate time to be marketable as a commercial pilot uh, was somewhere in the six year range uh, to get enough flight hours to be, um, I guess, uh, attractive to various uh, commercial operators. So when you then became fully qualified and you could fly as much as you want, basically, how many times a week were you flying? Um, you know, once I got done with, uh, with college or with school, um, you know, and I was actually working as a flight instructor for a while first. And then, um, as a, uh, on demand or on call, uh, cargo pilot, you know, I would basically fly almost every day. I mean, you know, I had vacations and sometimes weekends and that kind of stuff where I'd take days off. But, you know, through that process, I was flying pretty much every day. It's funny, even just listening to, to you now saying that you were flying every day. In my diabetic mind, I'm thinking, if I was to fly every day, what sort of preparations would I have to make right. sure I do? Because obviously you need to be safe while you're flying. Sure. And obviously that wasn't a thought process that you would go through because you weren't diabetic yet. So how yeah. many years were you flying then before you started to see, I suppose, your diagnosis kind of coming on? Right. So um, I was diagnosed at 36. And at that point, I've kind of uh, been commercially or professionally flying as an instructor and then cargo and then into the airlines, uh, basically that process started when I was 20. So, you know, at that point I'd been flying professionally for, you know, 16 years, uh, you know, before I was diagnosed. And so, you know, I was fortunate to have a, a good chunk of, of life without, uh, having to manage uh, type one diabetes. But I think also what that's done for me now is it's given me perspective on that. And, um, you know, giving me a point to kind of relate to folks that have been diagnosed slightly later on in life. And, um, yeah, you know, just have, have rolled that over into, uh, working with other folks, but yeah, you know, it, it did, it was an advantage at the time because back, you know, in the early two thousands, um, I would have been able to get a private pilot's license, um, as a type one diabetic, which would just allow you to fly on your, your own, basically operate your own aircraft or rent one, um, small aircraft. But, um, had the diagnosis occurred, maybe when I was 16, um, that could have potentially, you know, shut down that Avenue, uh, for me until, you know, very recently, which, you know, we can get into later. Do you think if you had, um, I'm asking this now because you just mentioned it, do yeah. you think if you had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes earlier in your life, you would have gone down a different path, even yeah. just in terms of your own head? Right, right. Um, yeah, you know, I think that would have been a very significant, um, yeah, fork in the road, so to speak, because you know, earlier in life, you know, prior to putting all that time and commitment into going through the process of, uh, you know, attaining the knowledge and experience, um, if it wasn't a eventuality or something that I, you know, was a possibility at that time. Yeah. You know, I, as far as what I would have gone down, I think now, um, I probably would have gotten into some sort of, um, nutrition and, uh, you know, physiology type, uh, track, uh, something probably in the health space because that was my other interest, uh, in college. And I think that's where I probably would have gravitated to, um, outside of, uh, 
aviation. Um, so I, yeah, that's probably where I would have gone with that if I had to really get pressed for an answer. <laughs> so you'd been consistently flying week on week on week for well over a decade, John. And because a diabetes diagnosis, as we both know, is uh, quite abrupt, was there a week or two where you were going to work and you were flying, but you just knew something wasn't right when you just weren't feeling well in those week or two leading up to you actually being diagnosed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was probably, you know, when I went back and kind of thought through the process, there was probably a solid maybe two months that kind of led up to my ultimate, uh, I guess, diagnosis and actually having to go into the hospital, into the emergency room. And, you know, kind of the beginnings of it were, um, you know, just having a little bit more fatigue and, you know, lethargy and that kind of stuff. You know, when I was trying to get, you know, workouts in or going out and exercising, I like to do a lot of mountain biking and, you know, outdoor activities and that kind of stuff. And I just uh, noticed that that was taking a lot more motivation than it normally would be. And then um, progressing from there, I started to actually have some uh, vision issues while I was flying. And by, by that, I just mean it felt like I needed to get a, a different prescription because I've always worn contacts. But, you know, I started to have a little bit of, uh, you know, blurred vision when I was trying to focus on things at great distances. Um, and I was like, well, that's not right. Maybe I just need to get my eyes checked. And I did. Um, and they gave me a slightly um, stronger prescription that seemed to help. But then other times it was too much. It would give me a headache. And, of course, looking at the physiology of diabetes, you know, that was uh, what was going on at that point was I'm sure I had massively fluctuating uh, blood glucose values that was giving me the blurred vision. And then when my blood glucose would come down, you know, the vision would, would improve. Um, so that was kind of the second part to that. And then probably the last month before I finally made my way into going to the hospital, you know, I had a lot, I had significant weight loss. You know, I kind of sit pretty comfortably at about 175 pounds. I was about six, two. And, you know, by the time I made my way to the hospital, I was down to about, uh, 150, 152 pounds. So I'd lost quite a bit of weight. Um, so yeah, it was a gradual progression there. And then, um, what kind of led me into the hospital was that as an airline pilot, which I was an airline pilot at the time, you have to constantly think of your fitness for duty or fitness for flight. Um, and it's a self-assessment that, you know, that's one of the responsibilities of, you know, being a commercial pilot is that you have to assess, you know, am I um, mentally and physically competent and fit to, you know, perform my duties and, you know, uphold the safety of the, uh, of the public and, you know, when I ended up going to the hospital, I was just so fatigued and so drained. I just, you know, had to call in for work and, um, you know, call unfit for duty, basically, or call in sick. And then uh, my wife was, you know, she had just come home from a, a shift at the hospital. She's a, a veterinarian. And she said, yeah, you're just not, you're not just staying home today. We're going to the emergency room because she had watched the progression over the last month and you know, watched her husband, you know, lose 20 pounds and plus and not look well. <laughs> so, no. so do you at that point had any idea what could have been wrong with you? Uh, you know, not, no, to be honest, you know, when I went into the, um, or prior to going into the hospital, I should say, I started to kind of poke around on the internet and, you know, Dr. Google. And also I talked to my sister and she's a very, uh, seasoned veteran of the healthcare industry. And, you know, everything else comes into mind, right? I mean, you type in some of your symptoms and, you know, it does pop up diabetes, but at the time, you know, uh, I guess I'm disclosing my own ignorance, but I think it's very common that when you're, when most people hear diabetes, they think of type 2 diabetes. You know, I would say nine times out of 10, right? unless they have some other exposure to someone with or a family member with type one. And so, you know, I said diabetes, I'm like, no, I'm, you know, I'm a competitive mountain biker. I work out every day. Like I don't have type two diabetes next, you know? And then the next things that were coming up on there were, you know, arguably even more alarming, you know, they have, you know cancer, multiple sclerosis, uh, lupus, you know, all these other um, very significant diseases and all, none of which sounded good. So, to, to answer the question shortly, type 1 diabetes just wasn't in there because you see, you know, still it's 
a lot of times uh, categorized as juvenile onset, and then it goes into that and says generally this doesn't develop beyond the age of 24 or 26, depending on you know what source you're looking at. And so again, I was thinking, oh, well, I'm 36 years old. There's no way that applies to me. And so yeah, when I ended up in the hospital, it was definitely very much a surprise. So you get the hospital, you have yeah. all these crazy thoughts going through your head, I would imagine. What's the first thought that comes to your head when you're told you have type 1 diabetes? Because I know on my side, I was thinking, there's no way I can be diabetic. I'm 19, I'm fit, I'm healthy, I'm young. This can't be diabetes. What was the first thing that came to your head? Uh, yeah, so on that, I would say, one, how is this going to affect uh, you know, not just my life, but my family's life and my wife? And uh, because of the fact that as an airline pilot, you have to hold a medical certificate that allows you to exercise the privileges of your pilot certificate, the next thought is, okay, how is this going to affect my medical certificate? And more than likely, based on the severity of it, I was thinking, yeah, this is probably going to cause a significant problem, if not completely make me ineligible for the medical certificate that I need. So you felt as if this wasn't just life-changing in relation to your health, but you also thought that it was just going to completely finish your aviation career. Right. Yeah. So, you know, as I'm sitting there in the uh, emergency room at the hospital, that's basically the next place that my mind went. You know, once I I was kind of sitting there and they were figuring out what to do with me, you know, I kind of got on my you know, cell phone and, and went to the Federal Aviation website and the medical side of it and, you know, started to put in type 1 diabetes. And then there came through in black and white where that was uh, the use of insulin or insulin-treated diabetes, whether it's type 1 or type 2, uh, was a disqualifying event for a first-class medical. And so at that point, you just kind of, aside from the physical concerns that you got going on, you know, you then see a 20-year career evaporate. So what was the next thought? Did you contact someone? Did you try and double check to see if that was genuinely going to disqualify you from it? I didn't, I guess, double check because it was, it was very, very clear uh, on, on the, uh, you know, their regulations. And then as far as contacting work and so on, I took care of that later after I got out of the hospital but um, kind of the next thought, you know, from there was just, I guess, concentrating on getting my health back and saying, okay, what do I need to know or learn or do to learn about and then hopefully manage and or control this you know, condition so I can get my health back. And then I thought, okay, once I do that, you know, then I'm going to try and see how or if this is something that I can work around and maybe get what's called a special issuance medical um, to, to get back to flying at some point. And, and on that same note, you know, a lot of, you know, I've had folks ask me before, they're like, wow, you know, that must have been a tremendous, I guess, blow or, or hit, which it was, of course. But, you know, I think like a lot of things in life, you know, you, you kind of have some some options there. And one of them would be to take the negative route and to say, you know, this is the end of everything. And, you know, this is going to ruin my life. And, you know, kind of go down that trajectory, I guess. Or you can say, you know, it's, it's a it's a mindset. You can say, well, this is a significant obstacle, but it's one that I can overcome and not just that, but you can then turn to all the positive things that you do have and then still have a, a loving wife, a great family structure and friends. And, you know, I still enjoy a lot of things outdoors. And, the, you know, you, you can turn to say, how do I overcome the obstacle and what are the positive things rather than dwelling on the negative? And that's, that's where I really try to focus. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's, it's so refreshing to hear that because it's how I've always tried to view my diabetes and how I always want anyone else out there living with diabetes to view it on the surface. This is a negative thing. Of course it is. It's life changing. Nobody wants to be diagnosed with type one diabetes, but like you said, John, you can either focus on the negative or you can focus on the positive. And it's out of our control that we were diagnosed, but it's in our control how we react, how we respond. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I just uh, I'm a firm believer in you know mindset and attitude, and uh, you know all those factors are 
one thing that, uh, or, or some things rather that everyone has absolute control over, you know, um, you, you know, you have the ability to choose how you're going to manage things and, or look at things, um, regardless of the severity or the situation. So you're leaving the hospital. Are you saying to yourself, obviously you've, you're devastated that you've been diagnosed, but are you saying to yourself, I'm going to get on top of this for my health? Or are you saying, I'm going to get on this on top of this for my health and so I can get back to flying? I would say both. You know, the, the, the second one, definitely um, getting a handle on it for you know, my health. And so it, you know, I wouldn't have to, I guess, be as concerned with all the potential negative consequences of not controlling it uh, well. Uh, and then the, the same, in that same thought, just like you were, you had mentioned on the, the second portion of that, it was if there's a possibility for me to get back to flying, it will be absolutely necessary for me to um, have very good management of this because ultimately that's how I assumed that you know, I'd be able to show the FAA that this was a, a safe condition provided you know, it was being managed properly. You're obviously back to flying now, thankfully. But what was happening in between the day you were diagnosed and the day you went back to flying? How did you manage the condition and how did you move forward with it towards eventually, hopefully, getting back to flying? Yeah, so, um, you know, with that, you know, once I got out of the hospital and, uh, you know, I guess it kind of, was, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a skill or something that, you know, I learned through going through university or what have you, but, you know, I'd always consider myself to be a fairly, I guess, inquisitive person. So, you know, when I left the hospital and even when, you know, I initially met with, uh, you know, a, certain, a diabetes educator and to some degree the first endocrinologist I worked with, there were a lot of gaps, so to speak, I guess would be the, the, the kind way of saying it. And I started to go and dig a bit. And I said, you know, the, the information that I've been getting up, in the, up until this point is basic at best. I understood why it was that way. They don't want to overwhelm you with too much information right off the bat, nor do they have time to go into great detail. But I just started to, you know, to dig and to say, like, what is, you know, the main components I guess, of uh, diabetic management and more specifically type one. And, you know, of those components, you know, you kind of have, uh, and like you've talked about, and uh, I think it's very important, you know, you, you kind of have your nutrition, you know, you have your activity, you know, and then you also have your insulin management. And so I just started to focus in on those components. You know, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on the activity standpoint. Um, and I did have some, education in, in college, you know, regarding that, um, the nutrition, you know, we were fairly, you know, we ate fairly healthy, um, before my diagnosis, you know, uh, mainly just so I could, uh, I guess, recreate and, you know, maintain, you know, physicality the way I wanted to, but I figured, okay, there's some changes that I thought needed to happen, um, because I wanted to identify what I thought was, I guess the main, antagonistic portion of diabetic control uh, and kind of figure that out. Um, and then also with the insulin, you know, I started to do a lot of uh, studying or rather, you know, kind of research on how they work, what they do, you know, how they affect the body and uh, how I would then utilize the combination of nutrition and the insulin to, you know, get stability and to manage the disease and avoid, you know, long-term complications because, you know, anyone that's a, diabetic can read, you know, knows the laundry list of potential complications from poorly managed diabetes. And, uh, none of them are good. You know, I mean, we don't have to go through the list of them, but none of them are good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, they're not good to say the least. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think then to follow on from that? What do you think was the biggest lifestyle change that you had to make? Because I was diagnosed at 19. I was old enough to realize the severity of it but i also wasn't old enough where i was so set in my ways 
Sure. And I feel that's the difference between somebody who is diagnosed quite young compared to somebody who is, I'm not saying you're old, John, but no, older I'm than expected. Saying I'm old, man. I'm old, man. <laughs> I'm not right. saying that. Yeah, what do right. you think was? Here, let me move my walker aside here real quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Zimmer frame. <laughs> so what do you think was the biggest lifestyle change that you had to shift? Um, I think the, the biggest changes came about with... Um, you know, my nutritional choices. Um, I guess the, the easiest way to, to, to breach that subject is just to say I kind of was, you know, had always been interested in, you know, health and nutrition. Um, but I, at the time, you know, I was basically getting away with kind of a standard athlete's diet, you know, like we ate fairly healthy, you know, I didn't, you know, eat fast food all the time and eat all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, on a frequent basis, but, you know, I, I certainly didn't feel like I needed to concentrate more than I was at the time because I had good body composition, you know, I, I didn't have a weight problem. I was able to, you know, do all the activities that I wanted to do. But when the diabetes was introduced into that, you know, I, as I started to kind of look through things, I, I kind of, uh, you know, came to the understanding that one of the biggest, uh, I guess, antagonists of um, diabetic management is highly processed foods and contained in those highly processed foods and the standard American diet or the standard Western diet seems to be the prevalence of uh, very high glycemic carbohydrates, you know? So I said, well, you know, it doesn't seem like you want to remove those altogether, but certainly I should change my ways as far as what types and when and how much of them uh, I was consuming because prior to di- you know, diagnosis, I mean, it, you know, I, I ate a lot of, you know, kind of sports nutrition type things and the bars and the, sh- the shakes and the drinks, especially when I was on the bike. And through trial and error, I found those extremely difficult to deal with now that I was diabetic and I was having to take, you know, exogenous insulin. And so I started to gradually reduce those and see what effect that had on my numbers and stability and just the, I guess, markers of the disease. And uh, I just found that uh, the more refined I got with eating, you know, minimally or unprocessed foods, cooking as much, you know, more. I mean, I cooked a lot anyway, but making as much stuff at home or cooking stuff as much as I could at home and, you know, staying away from the really high sugar, high carbohydrate food, it just made the management uh, less time consuming and I guess you could say easier. Um, And so I just uh, have been continually, I guess, learning and refining and trying new things or or trying to figure out what works best for me along the way. It's a similar theme that seems to kind of echo through anyone I speak to that's living with type one is the fact that it is just always a, a constant sense of trial and error and it's always needed. And what I mean by that is what may work for you, John, might not work for me or might something else might work for somebody down the road. And sure. that's a point that I always try and get across in this podcast is that your diabetes is unique to you. And it's important that you understand your body, your activity, your routine and how you can fit your diabetes management around that so you obviously dealt with things quite well from the sounds of it and you seem to kind of take the whole thing in your stride which is always good to hear when did you then start focusing on getting back to flying yeah so um you know after i was diagnosed i kind of had to start the process of one letting the the federal aviation administration know that i had this condition which you know immediately disqualified me from flying uh, and then I had to follow that up with my employer because I was you know, an active airline pilot um, at the company that I'm still employed at now. And, of course, I had to see if there was any options to do other things with the company at that point. And, uh, you know, that process, I guess, started a couple months after my diagnosis once I kind of had some time to start getting a handle on things. And, uh, you know, at that time, uh, there was no, I guess, path or protocol for me to attain um, the medical certification that I needed to continue flying commercially. So I was able to interview and 
get a position as an instructor um, at the airline I work for uh, as basically a ground instructor where I would teach all of the aircraft systems and all of the flight simulator-based training that was non-flying, basically. And that allowed me to stay with the company that I'm at, which was, you know, uh, very, very fortunate and feel very grateful for that. And then after I kind of got the uh, work, I guess, or employment situation taken care of, um, I then started to go down the track of where is or is there any advocacy to get a, uh, a special issue of medical for commercial airline flying? And at the time, this is uh, back in 2015, there wasn't. And there was already some advocacy um, moving, but it, uh, it was a very, very slow process. And so I started to get involved with that um, uh, effort. Uh, you know, just started to look at what was going to be required and what the FAA, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration, was going to want from a medical standpoint to potentially allow commercial airline pilots um, certification to continue, you know, flying or to begin their careers uh, with insulin-treated diabetes. And, uh, you know, just started to go down that, that track of advocating for that. And then also, you know, once I found out that really the primary thing that they were concerned with was your stability uh, as far as being able to maintain time and range and also your ability to avoid you know, hypoglycemic events because obviously that could potentially be you know, incapacitating or you know, in the most extreme sense or at the very least affect your uh, you know, mental capacity while you know, flying an airplane. So that you know, made me hone even more in on the nutrition component to say what is going to allow me to get or what will allow me to get the most stability with the, I guess, I wouldn't say least amount of maintenance, but to not have to constantly be chasing highs and lows. And uh, that's what led me further down the rabbit hole of you know, nutrition and um, getting more towards a, uh, a lower carbohydrate diet because I found that uh, particularly, you know, the reduction of uh, high glycemic carbohydrates and processed carbohydrates uh, provided a lot more stability and with much less insulin need. And then I just have been continuously refining that. And, you know, some people might be like, oh, great, he's not one of these low-carb guys. They're just going to sit here and, you know, <laughs> blast everybody that say you can't eat carbohydrates. And, <laughs> and, and that's not where I, I need to go with this. I've just found that for my application and from what I've found and how it affects me that getting away from all the processed junk is probably the first and foremost thing that I, I'm a really big advocate of. And to say that it's not to say you can never have it. And like you're a bad diabetic if you eat carbohydrates or sugar or any of that stuff. It's just that I've chosen to veer away from that for the most part, but if it's an occasional thing, I think the human body, even if you're not a diabetic, can endure a lot of stuff. I mean, we all know, especially when we're younger and, you know, you're younger than I am. I mean, you know, a 20 year old can treat their body like an amusement park and get away with it, quite frankly. <laughs> and That's many people do. <laughs> yeah, uh, I certainly did. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, it's just to say that maybe don't make that a everyday thing. You know, like I believe that if you can, get 80% of the way there, you're going to get most of the benefits. And, you know, that 20% time, you know, you can, you can adjust for that. If you know how to use your insulin, you understand the workings of that in your own body and how to use your insulins and when to use them and all that, you can have the occasional thing that you want to have. But it, in my opinion, the problem comes when it's every day. You know, you start every morning with 100 grams of carbohydrates and you continue that throughout the rest of the day. That's going to be difficult. It's not to say you can't do it or you can't manage it, but in my opinion, that require, requires a lot more uh, um, attention throughout the day. And so I've chosen to reduce the amount of carbohydrates and processed foods. And that means I spend less time um, kind of managing the gremlin, so to speak, you know, or, you know, it's kind of this aim small, miss small number, you know, like if I only have 20 grams of carbohydrates with some other healthy fats and proteins, I can use a half a unit of insulin to deal with that or one unit of insulin. And so your margin of error, at least for me, 
is much smaller. So if I miss, I miss by 20, 30 points, not 100 points. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And I actually call that carb capping. Right. What I, and what I mean by that is it's like you're capping your carb intake per meal or per day. And you're perfectly emphasizing the fact that what works for you works for you and your routine. And that's so important. And it's really about just making good decisions in relation to your diabetes management. Of course, you don't have to completely cut out foods that you like, but maybe cutting them back slightly will benefit your health more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I guess to quote uh, one of your buddies, Tom, but I listen to his talk or his podcast as well. You know, just don't eat like a dick every day. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you, there's many uh, magnitudes of that, but um, you know, yeah. I mean, anything you can do to to just kind of do a little bit better every day and, and not beat yourself up or, or not feel guilty about the fact that oh yeah, you know, like I went over to Granny's house and she made me this awesome blueberry pie and I had a piece of it. That's fine. The problem is, is like, don't take the pie with you and have it for the next week and a half. Of course. So at <laughs> least, you know, for me, you know. So, yeah, I mean, like what you said there, the, the carb capping. And, and again, you know, there's the infinite nutritional rabbit holes you can go down to. But, I, you know, from what I found, um, even back in college when I was, you know, you know, studying some nutrition and dietetics, you know, just from a historical standpoint, you know, it's only been very recently in the last maybe 50 or 60 years that we've found ourselves to the point where in, I guess, an unchecked or unregulated, not regulated, but a, I guess, a standard diet where we just kind of eat whatever, whenever, you know, that's available to us everywhere nowadays. I think the average carbohydrate load of, uh, you know, over here in America is anywhere from three to 500 grams of carbohydrates a day. And... In my opinion, that's excessive. I don't think the human body was designed to handle that your entire life. And uh, I guess the um, proof of that, I think, is to say that, you know, outside the diabetic community, the rates of, I guess, non-communicable diseases has just exploded in the last 80, 60, 80 years. Um, and so people say, well, are you a low carb or are you keto? I'm like, no, I don't really go down those really ultra dogmatic mindsets. But what I do try and advocate is that even for non-diabetics, I think, you know, provided, you know, depending on your activity level for the day and, and so on, I think it's far more uh, physiologically appropriate to maybe be somewhere in the 100 to 150 gram of carbohydrates a day and then if you choose to go lower than that great uh and if not you know it's not the end of the world but i i just feel like the human body does not handle these ultra processed ultra high carb ultra high sugar foods over the duration you know now that's my opinion and, and if people have other opinions i certainly don't fault them for that i think they're bad people I, that's just everyone has their own uh way of thinking about that you know so essentially, it was at a point where it wasn't just down to you actually being diabetic. You had to prove that your management was good enough, basically, to, to fly. I think that's where I was kind of uh, going down that road of just explaining some of my choices as far as, you know, just, um, you know, keeping, you know, my nutritional choices maybe a little bit uh, on the lower carbohydrate side and just kind of talking about, uh, you know, I've just found for my own management and how the the stability and so on that I found um, by, you know, just being more mindful of, you know, how much and what type of food that I'm eating and, and trying to stay away from all, all of the very, uh, you know, processed and, and ultra high carb foods has really um, provided the, uh, the level of stability that is uh, kind of required for the uh, avi or Federal Aviation Administration to kind of show them that I'm safe and stable, basically, uh, while uh, I'd be operating an aircraft because, you know, that's kind of the name of the game when it comes to flying is to avoid all of those fluctuations or large fluctuations, I should say, with, uh, you know, my, my glucose numbers. So was that proof then over, over 
three months, six months, a year? How long did you have to show that your management was within a certain range? Yeah. So um, with that, over the last uh, five years, you know, our advocacy finally got some official protocols approved by the FAA as far as what they wanted to see or what we had to turn in for their assessment as far as your safety to fly or your ability to safely fly. And um, it's something that I kind of honed in on um, over the last few years. And then ultimately the, in the last year actually is when all of these um, efforts kind of came to fruition and there was an official protocol and with that, the, the first uh, kind of reiteration of the protocol was that um, they wanted you to be able to maintain your blood glucose uh, between here in the States, 70 or excuse me, 80 milligrams per deciliter to 250 with um, approximately 85% time in range. And for over on your side of the lake, I did the conversion already. It's about 4.5 to uh, 14 millimoles. And they've since refined that uh, down to 4.5 to 8 millimoles, uh, so 80 to 180 is what their preferred range is. And um, you know they want your coefficient of variation or your standard deviation to be you know under 25, preferably with um, just notations of you know those excursions outside those values. And uh, so, so that's mainly what they're looking for from your stability standpoint. Not to say that if you have any excursions outside of that, that it's disqualifying, but the more time that you spend in those ranges, the, I guess, more satisfying it is from their assessment on your stability. So essentially you just need to reassure them that I have type one diabetes, but it's well managed. My time and range is high. I can safely fly a plane. <laughs> Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and that I guess a component of that, and I've spoken with some of the, I've spoken with some of the uh, physicians at the FAA, is that they're using that as an indicator of your understanding, I guess, of the uh, and choice to control your uh, glucose within you know those parameters, which are you know very tight, so that when you are flying, that you are aware of you know, how to avoid mainly lows. Um, they're not as concerned with excursions on the high side because that's not as much of a risk to mental incapacitation. But of course, as we all know, you know, you want to, for long-term health, you want to avoid those higher blood glucose values for prolonged periods of time. So, you know, that, that's what they're looking at in, the, in that regard. So when the time finally came that you could fly again? Yeah. How long had you not been flying? Uh, so when all that came through was actually just uh, December um, of this year. And, um, you know, with that, or rather at that point, it had been just over five years since I had you know, flown commercially. I had done some um, flying privately uh, because I was able to maintain a, a lower classification of medical certification during that five-year time. But as far as getting that final, what's called a first-class medical here in the United States, um, it had been, you know, just over five years. So I was still serving as an instructor, you know, at the airline. So that kind of kept my head in the game, so to speak. But, um, you know, I hadn't actually, I guess, manipulated the controls and been in the aircraft flying for uh, just over five years at that point. So then by the time you got back to your first big commercial flight, how did it feel is the first question. Yeah. And how did your preparation differ from when you weren't type 1 diabetic? Yeah. So uh, first question was, you know, it's just, um, I, you know, I would almost compare it to being almost more satisfying than when I first began flying commercially as a non-diabetic, you know, I mean, it, uh, because of the duration of time and all the, you know, time and effort that, uh, many others, including myself had put into getting that advocacy pushed through a government institution, which, um, 
you know, uh, I don't think it's that much different over where you guys are at. You know, when you start dealing with the government, things move at a glacial pace and can be very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it felt great. You know, it was kind of like that. Uh, I, I guess the best way I can describe it would just be, you know, returning to something that you, you, you knew was right. You know, I just, you know, I'm a huge, uh, you know, are uh, very enthusiastic about flying. And yeah, I'd put a lot of time and effort into, you know, getting those skills developed and, and, and everything that goes into that. And yeah, I mean, that first flight was just, uh, it was just, you know, great. I mean, you know, I just kind of sat there and I was in the airplane, you know, taxiing out onto the runway and lined up on the runway center line and, you know, cleared for takeoff and, you know, you, you have to do everything in a timely manner, but I was just like, man, you know, this is, yeah, this is big, you know, and not just from my own personal standpoint, but also just as a means of saying, hopefully to other, you know, diabetics and folks that I've talked with that it's a representation of what's possible. And, and that's kind of the, the weight of, of, I guess, what, what was going on there was, you know, this is an indication of what's possible. And, you know, some of the kids that I've talked with and parents of type one diabetic, you know, children, yeah, that was always one of the things that they said, well, you can do almost anything as a type one diabetic, except one of them was be a commercial airline pilot. And so when this happened, I was just like, that's one less thing that is limiting and is a, I guess, negative or a limiting factor for others moving forward. And so, you know, it, it was really satisfying, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can even, I can almost feel it through the microphone the satisfaction and yeah. it's nice to hear because it obviously meant so much to you which is quite clear but again it just proves that specifically in relation to flying it proves that diabetes won't stop you doing it and just in general it reiterates the fact that yes you can be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes but you still can do what you want and you're obviously proving that and you proved it to yourself sitting on the runway ready to go after those five six years without flying commercially commercially so i'm sure it was a, a big moment for you personally too which is great a question i was <laughs> i was thinking about yeah and i'm i'm curious to know was there ever an incident while you were flying because obviously when i have a low blood sugar or anyone has a low blood sugar it's like I feel as if I'm melting. Yeah. Had you ever any incidents while being in a plane commercially or even just a smaller aircraft? Um, no, actually. Um, and the reason why I had some hesitation, yeah. The reason why I had some hesitation there is that I don't want to make it sound like, or I guess to sound arrogant, so to speak, but you know, the whole time leading up to that, I'd always placed a lot of emphasis on, avoiding those lows. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a bit before, which is, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into, you know, diabetic management before that moment, long before that moment to make sure that that would not happen. And, you know, uh, you know, on that note, um, you know, going back to the kind of aim small, miss small thing, you know, you, you just have to, be very comfortable with how you manage and knowing yourself, so to speak, and, and knowing what, uh, how your insulin is going to affect you and knowing what, you know, is going to happen with, uh, your various, uh, nutritional choices and what you're eating, you know, before the flight, during the flight, you know, while you're at work, away from work and just, you know, employing all of those things that you learn along the way so that, you're not uh, putting, you know, the, the safety of flight at risk. And that is the absolute paramount of the entire, you know, uh, basis around, you know, commercial airline flying is, you know, providing the utmost level of safety to the passengers. And, you know, I, I take that responsibility very, very seriously. And I would not hesitate to uh, remove myself from uh, active duty if I felt like that that was ever in, in, in danger uh, or rather at risk. And uh, to answer your question, you know, that's a long winded way of saying, you know, no, I have not had it, but 
that <laughs> goes into yeah, and that goes into the um, uh, I guess qualification standards that the FAA has put out, where they have very very tight parameters, and as a uh, uh, I guess a indication of how stringent the uh, assessment of this is for the FAA. The protocol requires me to submit what ended up being about 160 pages of medical records to show that I was stable before they uh, approved, you know, my uh, medical request. So, and and that's something that isn't just, you know, you get the approval and you're done with it. I have to submit effectively the same amount of CGM tracking, blood glucose uh, readings, A1Cs, endocrinology reports, um, ophthalmologist reports, so eye exams, cardiac exams, treadmill stress tests, full blood work uh, every three months. And if any of those uh, assessment criteria don't fall within the parameters, you are immediately removed from flight status. It's all very reassuring for anyone who is afraid of flying to, yeah. to hear all of this, that they yeah. go through such a stringent routines yeah so there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of safeguards in in place but um you know it's all attainable and i'm not a unicorn anyone can do it if they choose to take the steps necessary to to achieve that you know it's 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 100 available to any diabetic uh now at least in the united states and i believe it's also available uh, you know, in the UK and Ireland, Scotland, you know, provided that, you know, you can meet those parameters and, you know, it's just a matter of having that goal. And if it's important enough to you, uh, taking the necessary steps to achieve that goal. I'm presuming John, if you're flying commercially, there's a co-pilot in the cockpit with you. Is it necessary for a co-pilot or even anyone else on the flight staff wise to know about diabetes itself, considering the fact that you are diabetic? Um, it's not, um, I guess, required that you, I guess, notify them. Um, there's many safeguards uh, in, in place just in a normal uh, commercial airline flight deck to, I guess, verify or to make sure that the other pilot um, is not uh, incapacitated in some way. You know, there's other medical conditions, of course, far outside or many outside of uh, diabetes that could potentially incapacitate someone. So, you know, with that, you know, in a, in a commercial environment, you know, we have very regimented procedures and uh, what we call kind of verbal cross checks that uh, are constantly ensuring that the other pilot is, you know, on the same, I guess, task and, and is aware of. Uh, what's going on, and we do that through you know things called callouts and you know cross checks and checklists and 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 things like that and briefings that we do. So there's no direct requirement to say, hey, you know, just so you know, I'm a type one diabetic, and you know here's what needs to happen if you know you think that I'm you know incapacitated. But you know I guess some of that is uh, they're they're reliant upon the. I guess implied responsibility of a commercial airline pilot to self-disclose to say if something isn't going right and to kind of re relinquish control of the airplane to the other pilot, you know, if that were to become an issue. Now, on that, you know, note, you know, I guess with, uh, you know, as far as like needing to inject insulin or taking a correction dose or something like that while I'm flying, because I mean, you know, we, you know, a standard duty day for us, you know can consist of, you know, up to 14 hours. And, you know, in that we can fly up to eight to 10 hours in a day. Uh, so, you know, it's a large chunk of the day. You got to eat at some point, you got to take some insulin at some point. Um, so you have to just be very um, confident with your management to manage that. And so where I was going with that is that I've never been one to, I guess, hide, you know, the fact that I have diabetes, but I also don't make a spectacle out of it. I'm not going to, you know, stand up in the middle of the flight deck and, you know, jab myself in the stomach with a syringe and be like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. But if I need to take a correction dose, I'll do it. And, you know, I might explain to the other person to say like, hey, just so you know, like, you know, here's what I'm doing. And, and a lot of times it's, it's interesting because it does spur a conversation where people are usually just curious about it. 
And, uh, you know, I take that opportunity if, you know, people ask to, to, you know, uh, explain the situation and, and try and educate them a little bit. And, you know, most people, once they kind of understand the intricacies of it are very accepting of it. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that probably still hold the opinion that it's maybe not safe, but, you know, I've kind of made it my, uh, I've taken upon myself to show through example, uh, that it, it is safe and it, and it is, you know, um, something that can be done properly, I guess. You make it very clear how confident you are in your own management. And obviously that's important in relation to flying a plane. And it's also just important in relation to going about your day. It's vital that you are confident with how to manage your blood sugar, no matter if you're going on holidays, if you're going to school, if you're going to work, if you are potentially flying a plane, it's so important that you have that confidence with your own management. And it's quite clear that you do have that because you don't have any second thoughts of, can I do this? Which is great. It's, it's very reassuring. For somebody personally who isn't too fond of flying, I hope I'll someday be on one of your flights. <laughs> one last awesome. question, John. Yeah. If you had the opportunity to thank diabetes for something, what would that be? Yeah. So um, I think diabetes uh, has given me the, uh, I guess, opportunity to be more aware of health and has kind of forced me to look more closely at how to achieve that. And, um, you know, that's, I think been a huge benefit for, you know, myself and other people that, you know, I've worked with that are, you know, either type one or type two diabetics and, and even how those things that I've learned can be a massive benefit for anyone's health, not just a diabetic, you know, um, because really the things, and again, in my opinion, the things that lead to better or good diabetic management are that way because they're good for your health. They're not just good for diabetes, if that makes sense. <laughs> makes perfect sense. It's not living your life just to manage your diabetes. It's managing your health and then the extra to that is managing your, your diabetes, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, a lot of those things are some of the things I've learned along the way have had positive uh, effects on other things. You know, like I, I like, you know, racing mountain bikes and weight training and, you know, staying physically active and, you know, the things I've refined, I guess, along the way have had very positive correlations to all those other aspects of life, of life not just diabetic management. I'm sure... There will be a lot of diabetic pilots looking up to you, John, and very appreciative of the work that you've done. I'm very appreciative of the time, and thanks for coming to talk to me. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Apologize about the audio issues, but um, no, I, I really appreciate you having me on the show. And yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully some people find some value in this. And yeah, I guess my closing thought was is just, you know, uh, you know, really impressing upon people that, um, you know, knowledge is power and, you know, and not just power, but power to be confident with this disease that none of us chose to have. But um, just educate yourself, apply it, see what works for you. And, um, you know, if you mess up a day or a couple of days or a week or something happens, tomorrow's a new day and take that new day to get back at it. <laughs> Love it. Very reassuring. John, is there anywhere somebody can reach out to you contact-wise or find out more about you and your story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not, uh, I guess, overly active on uh, social media, but on Facebook, uh, it's just my name, John Roth. Um, you know, I'm on there. You can uh, you know, message me on there. Um, I do Instagram once in a while. Uh, I'll post some pictures on there of uh, you know, our various outdoor activities and some flying stuff on uh, Instagram. And that's just a T1 flyer. Um, and I'll post some stuff on there. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me, uh, just you know, send me a message on there and, you know, I'll do my best to get back to you as soon as possible. And, you know, if anyone has questions on flying or, uh, or even, you know, some of the ways I 
you know, manage things, uh, I'd be more than happy to, you know, to uh, talk with them about that. Hopefully you're sparking some interest for future type one diabetic pilots. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. That's, that's, that's my main goal for sure. <laughs> Again, John, thanks so much for your time. Have a great day and I'll chat to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you. How's it going? Owen here again. Just dropping in to say a few words like I always do. How unreal is that story? I was listening to it and it's fascinating to hear somebody go the full 180 of John was flying for well over a decade, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. His initial thought was, I can now no longer fly. And then he prioritized his health prioritized his education around his own diabetes, became, like he said, so confident with his own management, realized, wait a second, I can fly a plane. And then for five, six years, worked so hard to change those federal regulations. So very inspiring to hear people like that. And if you are somebody who has something in mind they want to do and they feel as if, hmm, diabetes could stop me doing that, it won't. Prioritize your management and you can do anything you want. Whatever you want to do, go do it. Don't, don't let diabetes be the excuse. Make it be the reason, like we always say on here. Anyway, as always, really hope you enjoy that podcast. If you did and if you do enjoy the podcast, we really appreciate if you rate, comment, subscribe. Really helps the podcast and it gives us that extra boost to potentially reach a lot more diabetics out there. So always appreciate it. Always appreciate you tuning in. Again, if you have any thoughts, questions, or stories you would like to share with myself or Graham, be sure to let us know. Do not hesitate to reach out. You can get us at theinsalonepodcast at gmail.com and we'd be happy to read it, happy to share it if you would like over the podcast. And as always, have a great day. Have a great week. Look after your blood sugars. Chat to you soon. Good luck.